Father, we thank you for bringing us here today. We thank you for drawing this church family together, and we pray that as we open up your word that you would open our eyes and our hearts to what you have to say to each of us, that you would take your word and, and make it real in our lives, real in our hearts, and you would draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to begin a new series today as we uh, walk through this time together in the search of our, our new pastor. And um, Paul has brought us to First Thessalonians to look at, at the church and what the church is and how the church should act and, and what the church believes as we seek to make sure that we are a church that is ready for our new pastor to come in and, and lead us, that we're not waiting for that new person to direct us, but we are making sure that we as a church are following Christ already, that we are strengthening ourselves already as we uh, anticipate someone coming in here to bring us into the next uh, chapter of this church's history. But we don't wait to serve the Lord. We do that now. And so we're going to be looking at First Thessalonians over the next few weeks, and we're going to begin in chapter 1 today. And I just want to read it to start off. We'll read through the whole chapter. So, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. What a call to our church. I want to begin today, I want to talk about a movie, which I do often here, I know. But uh, there's a great movie, Ben-Hur, 1959, starring, starring Charlton Heston. And anybody who watches this movie, everybody who's going to watch this movie, watches this movie for one reason, that scene. That's dead. That scene over there. Uh, the chariot scene. This is one of the most famous scenes in all of movie history. And it's also one of the most expensive scenes in all of movie history. This is a nine minute scene in the movie. And it, as I said, this is why we watch this movie. You see, this set that they're running on, this is a set that they built on the back lots of a studio in Rome. It took 750 workers to build this set. They, filmed this, they filmed this 10 minutes, or this nine minute scene, they filmed for 10 weeks. 
there's thousands and thousands of extras. If you go to the, the next slide, the detail in building this set was incredible. They built an entire Roman stadium. If you go to the next one, you can see how big it actually is. This is, they built all of that. At the time when this was built, it cost them $4 million to build this set. The budget of the entire movie was $15.2 million. Today, it's roughly, it'd be 30, $34 million to make this set. At nine minutes, that's roughly $3.7 million a minute. And it's this great spectacle that everybody watches, everybody goes to see. But the funny thing about this movie is it actually starts with this picture, the overture. The first six minutes of Ben-Hur is just this picture with music over it. And I was listening to a podcast where there's these two people, they're going through the uh, 100 greatest movies in the AFI list, and they talked about watching this movie and how excited they were for the scene that was coming up and all of the greatness that's coming in this movie. And the one podcaster said, yeah, but when the overture was on, I just went and got my popcorn. And it's this amazing thing of they know that there's this amazing thing that's going to happen. But in this beginning of the movie, it's just a bit of a waste of time where they can go and get ready and situate themselves. And they don't really need to care about that beginning part because all that matters is the glory that is to come. And I think as a church that is gathering here today seeking to worship the Lord, we need to be careful that that mindset doesn't creep into our church and our thinking. We know the greatness that's to come. We know the glory that is waiting for us and we're focused on it as we should be. But we need to make sure that we're not looking at this life right now as the overture. Just taking our time, getting our popcorn ready, sitting through life, waiting for what's to come. As a church, we need to make sure that our anticipation for what's to come actually shapes the way we view the life that we're in right now. That this is not a waste of time, but an incredible opportunity that the Lord has given us. And so today I want to talk about what does it mean to be waiting for God? This is what Paul is instructing the church in Thessalonica, that they are waiting for God, but their waiting for God does not mean sitting around doing nothing until he returns. No, waiting for God means working for God, and we're going to look at that here today. I'm going to begin actually in verse 10, because in verse 10, Paul gives us the thesis statement for this entire letter, and really what I think is the foundation for faith in Christ and how we are to live. This is the backbone of everything we're going to read today and all of what God calls us to through Paul. In verse 10 of this letter, chapter 1, Paul writes this, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is what it's all about. This is what being a Christian is all about. And as we go through this letter today, and we go through chapter one, I want you to remember this. The church that Paul is writing to is brand new. 
they're somewhere between three months to 12 months old. And I'm not talking, this is a group of Christians who went and planted a church. This is a group of Gentiles who were converted maybe a year ago at most. And so as we read through this letter, and you're thinking through this tall task that God has for his people, you might be inclined to think, well, those are a group of of strong, established believers. No, he's talking to new believers here today that we're reading And he says, this is what you need to know, that we are waiting. We are waiting for God's son to return, to come from heaven. God's son who died for our sin. God's son who gave up his life for us. God's son who had done nothing wrong but went to the cross to die so that we could live. God raised him again, and he will return And when he returns, he rescues us fully from the wrath that is to come. That word wrath often brings up emotions in us. There's many people here who are probably uncomfortable with this idea of a a God of wrath. There's a quote by N.T. Wright that I think helps us understand this a little bit. N.T. Wright writes, People sometimes ask how a loving God can also be angry. Looking back at the inhumane and brutal 20th century, one has to say that a good and loving God must be angry when faced with such wickedness. But though this time of wrath will surely come, Jesus himself will deliver his people. What N.T. Wright points out is the 20th century was the bloodiest century in all of history, the most fighting, the most death. War, genocide. People out against other people. Stealing resources from other countries. And what N.T. Wright is saying is if you truly believe that God cares about people, then how can you believe that God would just look at that and not care? A God of love means a God who is uncomfortable with the injustices of what humanity has done. A God who loves me would not look at me in the way I've rebelled against him, the way I've rejected the life that he's created for me, and say, I'm okay with that. Wrath goes with love. They are hand in hand. Somebody who loves that much is that angry as we waste the, the world that he's created for us, as we waste the relationship that he's created for us. But the good news is that even though that wrath is coming, we don't have to bear it because Christ died in my place so that I could live. And Paul is highlighting that for these people so that in everything that they're doing in this life, while they're waiting for Christ to come, they would remember everything we're doing is because Christ loved me so much he died for me. That Christ is so holy, he was risen again. That Christ is so powerful, he's coming to take all of the wrath on the world and to eliminate it and save his people, to free his people from the wrath that is to come. That he will eliminate all of the injustice, all of the inhumanity, all of the ungodliness in this world and redeem it and restore it to where we can live with God in perfect relationship again. That is what we are waiting for, for Christ to return and bring us into perfection. We are waiting to be with our Father and with our Savior. 
That is what we need to know. That's what motivates us and establishes what we believe and who we are as God's people. And if we don't know that here today, we need to know the love that God has for us because that's what you were created for. To worship God, to love God, to be with God. And to know that he loves you so much he sent his son so that you wouldn't have to face the wrath of God that comes from our sin and our rebellion but that you could experience the love of God that Christ deserved and has given to us. That's what we need to keep in mind as we're thinking, what does living in this life mean? What does it mean to be a church of God? What does it mean to be a follower of God? It means waiting for Christ, our Savior, to return, to be with him. But we're going to keep reading. I want to go back to, chapter, to verse 1 now. And what we're going to see here is that Paul is very clear that although we are waiting for Christ to return, although we are waiting to be with him in eternity, waiting means that we get to work. So I'm going to read from, from verse 1 here. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction, you know how we lived among you for your sake. We are waiting, but we are called to work. We are waiting, but we get to share the gospel. We are waiting, but we get to care for people and, and care for their needs. See, I love this opening to this letter that Paul writes. As he begins and says, we always thank God for all of you. Always thank God for all of you. There's a couple things I think we need to notice there. The first is Paul is not writing to the church leadership. He's writing to all of the Christians. He's writing to the entire church. Everything he is calling that church to, he is calling all of the believers to. As we all wait, we are all called to work together for the kingdom of God. We all have responsibilities, and we all have the privilege to serve God and share his love with others, every single one of us. And I think this is an incredible challenge to us today. As we read this, Paul opens his letter and says, we thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. And I think the question we need to ask as we read through this is, are we a church that somebody would be thankful for? Are we a church that somebody would come to and be thankful that they were welcomed into this church on a Sunday morning to worship with this church family? Are we a church that people who have been here for a long time would be thankful to be a part of because we have so prayed for them and, and equipped them and cared for them in their needs? Am I a Christian that somebody would be thankful that I was a part of their life because I shared the gospel with them 
that through my work and, and praying for them and, and talking with them, that God grabbed a hold of their heart? Am I the kind of Christian that somebody would say, thank God that person was in my life because when I was going through a difficult time, they really showed me the love that God had for me. They really helped me see God's plan for my life. They really helped me see that I needed to follow God more closely. They were there for me. They helped me. They encouraged me. I was there for them. We can just read through this opening to this letter, but there's an enormous challenge to us here to be like the church in Thessalonica where Paul needs to start by saying, I just want to thank you for following Christ so well right now. And then he moves into prayer. And what we see here is working for Christ means starting with prayer. We're starting this uh, process where we've, we're putting out the, the job, what is it, the ministry opportunity profile? I don't do details. Uh, we're asking for somebody to apply here. Uh, and that doesn't start with us meeting together and doing surveys and, and putting together this document that's going to go out there. It starts with us praying because God's been at work at this way longer than we realize. And in praying, we're joining in the work that God is already doing because it's him who's going to fill this pulpit, not us. It's him who's called someone to be here, not us. It's him who's prepared the heart and life of that person, not us. And as we pray, we're joining in what God is doing, and we're admitting that we need God to do the work. So often when we approach life, we think of all of the things we need to do. We're going to make our plan and our checklist. And what Paul does here is, is he says, I, just, I pray for you all the time. That's the first thing you need to know. I'm praying for you. I'm praying that God would keep you safe. I'm, I'm praying that God would cause you to grow. I'm praying that God would give you opportunities to share. I'm praying for you all of the time because that's the most, before I tell you everything I need to tell you, I want you to know I'm praying for you. And so as a church, we need to pray. And one of the amazing things about doing this, this search for this pastor is one of the things that has come out is there is a heart to pray more in this church. And one of the cool things about being in the search meetings is one of the things that keeps coming up is why would we wait for somebody to come and tell us to pray when we already are saying we want to pray? And Paul here is showing us the work of following Christ, the work of growing the kingdom of God, the work of being obedient to our Father is to pray. So who are we praying for in our lives? Who are we praying for that, that God would open their eyes to his love? Who are we praying that God would strengthen and equip? How are we praying for our church family together? Let's start praying more. Let's pray for each other because that's where the work of God begins. And it's clear that Paul is talking about work here because I want you to notice the, the things that he says. When he's thanking and praying for them, he says in, in verse 3, we remember before our God and Father the work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is very clear with them. Being a Christian means you're getting to work. 
It's an opportunity to be a part of what God has done. You are saved by grace. You are set free from the burden of your sin, but you are set free so that you can work. It is work. It is labor. It is endurance. It is difficult. There are times where we are going to fail and want to give up because we feel so bad about the way that we've let God down or we've let other people down. There are times where it's going to feel like we're running into a brick wall and all of the prayers and all of the work we're doing are just not doing anything because that person's not responding or, or that fellow Christian has started to, to live in ways that are ungodly and, and refusing to, to uh, correct their behavior and their love for God. There might feel like times where just everything is against us all of the time. There might be times where we start to fall into sinful heart patterns and what Paul is saying here is being a Christian, spreading the gospel, worshiping God, takes work, it takes labor, and it takes endurance. But he anchors each of those by pointing us back to that very thing we started at the beginning with the gospel. He says, your work, which is produced by faith, your labor, which is prompted by love, and your endurance, which is inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we work? Why do we labor? Why do we persevere in difficult circumstances? Because we're waiting for Christ to return. Because we're worshiping the God who loves us. Leon Morris, he writes this, Hope in a Christian context always has an air of certainty about it. It is a confident expectation, not the unfounded optimism often meant by the word. We work and we struggle and we hope because we know that Christ died for us. We know that Christ has made us clean. We know that God is redeeming more people and growing his kingdom. And we know that Christ will return to set all things new. That is why we keep going. Robert L. Thomas writes this, Indeed, wherever genuine faith is present, it works. Work is a mark of somebody who understands that they have been saved by grace and called into God's family. Working shows that we understand the love that God has for us and that we love people enough to bring that to them and to care for them. We are waiting, but as we're waiting, we get to work for Christ. We don't waste our time. We take the privilege of being brought into God's family. And all of this is anchored in love. Deuteronomy 7, God says this. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God didn't choose you, call you to work because he needed you or because you were impressive. He called you because he loved you. And that's why we keep going. That's the love we want other people to know. That's the God that we worship, the God who loves us and chose us and freed us through his son. We work for him, 
knowing that he is working all the time. We keep going forward. But as we keep reading here, what we're going to see is waiting means we also, we get to reveal Christ. As we wait, we get to reveal Christ. So picking up in verse 5 here again, we see this. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction, you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. What a powerful thing to say about a group of believers who are months into their journey with God. And he starts off by saying that this is about the power and the conviction of the message. Notice what he says here. That you didn't simply, uh, the, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. And that shows us two things here. One, it shows us that when Paul preached the message, he preached it with deep conviction. Paul preached the message as somebody whose eyes had been opened to the love of God, somebody whose heart had been changed by God, somebody who knew what it meant to be saved, somebody who understood how they were dead in their sins and brought to life. When Paul shared the gospel, it was with conviction, it was with power, it was somebody who knew the changing work of God and wanted other people to experience it. And that's the kind of way that we need to approach this as well. When you talk about your faith with people, when you share the gospel with people, when people ask you why you live your life the way you do, do you share your answers with deep conviction? Somebody who's really felt the power of God in their life. Because as Paul shared with his deep conviction, lives were changed, a church began and grew. We need to be people who spend so much time in the word and in prayer that it consumes us and fills our heart, and we spill our hearts out to people with the love that God has shown us. But what we also see here is that deep conviction is founded in the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul can have that deep power, that deep conviction, because he's confident knowing that it is the Holy Spirit who is at work in the lives of the other people. These aren't just Paul's words that he's made up and he's sharing. He's sharing the gospel, the love of God that he knows from scripture, that he knows from his life of worshiping God and in his prayer. And he knows that as he speaks his words, it's God who's taking those words and planting them in the hearts of the people who are listening. That is how the church in Thessalonica began, and that's what it started to do. As it says, they started to imitate Paul and Paul's followers as Paul was imitating Christ and the love that was shown to him. And as they do this, as they take this message that has changed their lives, as they experience the love of God and share that with those who are around them, they have this incredible opportunity to share what Christ is like. 
by being like him, by being focused on the truth and, and spreading God's love, and by following him in obedience. Thessalonica had this unique opportunity. They, they geographically were positioned in the right place to make sure the gospel would spread. There's a, a map that I have here for you to look at, uh, and it's really hard to see. I'll try to break it down for you. But this is um, the Ignatian Way or the Via Ignatia. And Thessalonica, which is Thessaloniki in this map, uh, it's located almost in the middle, right where there's that bay on the left in the middle of that way. But this is a path. If we go to the next slide, this is a path, a, a road that would go from Rome to By, By, Byzantium. Or if you want to look at it this way, it goes from Italy to Turkey, Constantinople. That is most of the significant empire that Rome was would go through Thessalonica. If you want to get from one side to the other, if you're going to trade in cities, you're going through Thessalonica. And people are going to meet the church there and hear the gospel there. They're positioned in this unique place where people from all over the, the known Roman world would go through their city. Not only that, they're on the bay. They're, they're a port. And so they're a significant trading place where people are coming in and out on the sea. People are coming from all over, and as they come to Thessalonica, they're going to hear the gospel. They're going to see the gospel in that church. And Paul says here that all of the world, that, that, that their faith in God has become known everywhere. And that's a bit of a hyperbole, which Paul does. But Paul is making one thing clear. The Thessalonians didn't waste an opportunity to share the gospel. And, and Paul is excited not just because of the reach that they're able to have, but because of their passion in revealing Christ to people. To, to quote Robert L. Thomas again, we see this in, in his commentary. Part of the Thessalonians' outreach stemmed from their location on the Ignatian Way and the Thermaic Gulf with access by sea to the whole Mediterranean world. But the largest factor was their diligence in communicating their faith to others. You might not live at a trading post on the most significant world, uh, road in the world, but you see people every day. You meet people every day. And every time you meet someone, is a chance to show them God's love. Every time you meet someone, is a chance to, to be kind, to welcome someone in. Every relationship that we have is an opportunity to share the gospel. And what Paul is so excited about, what God is so excited about, about this church in Thessalonica, was that they didn't waste any of those opportunities. Paul is encouraging them because everyone who comes by them is cared for. Everyone who comes by that church is prayed for. Everyone who comes by that church has an opportunity to hear the gospel. They had this ability to have these people coming in and out of their lives, in and out of their city, and they took that as an opportunity to work for God and share the gospel. And our challenge is to make sure that we are doing the same, that we are eager to see people cared for, comforted, to experience God's love, and most importantly, that we are eager that people hear the gospel. 
And most importantly in here is a challenge to us once again. See, Paul is so happy that that church is imitating him as he imitates Christ. And Paul's hope is that as they imitate Christ, that other people will see them and begin to imitate them as well. So the question for us as a church here today is what would it look like for other churches to imitate what we're doing? Is that something that we would be proud of and happy about? Is that something that we would encourage other churches to do? To say, hey, we're following God as closely as we can and we're worshiping God as, as loudly and as proudly as we can and we're serving people as much as we can. As we follow God, you can follow our example. Do we have the kind of church that Paul would look at and say, I'm so glad that people are looking to you and seeing you because they're gonna follow in your footsteps. And as a church, we need to be striving to make sure everything we do is about worshiping God and loving people in a way that other people can look at and take as well. Are we the kind of church that God would write these words to? You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. Are we that kind of church? that God would say, you have become a model for other Christ followers. That's the goal. That's what we aspire for. That we would be known for the love that we have for God's people, our dedication to his truth and his word, and worshiping and praising him as we wait for him to return. And I want to look at one more thing this morning when it comes to understand what does it mean to be a church waiting for Christ. Waiting means we get to worship Christ. Paul ends this section of his letter. He says this, For they themselves report the, uh, what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. We worship. We know that in glory we will be with God, we will be with the Son, we will be with our Savior. But we don't wait until then to worship. We worship now. One of the things that Paul is so excited about, about this church, is that they've turned from idols to follow the true and living God. You see, this was a Roman city. And in Rome, the culture was... You worship Rome. That is what you do. If you want to be significant, if you want to be important, if you want to be accepted by people, you worship Rome. See, they would do this politically. Augustus, when he became Caesar, he made sure that everyone knew his dad, Julius, was a god. 
When Julius Caesar died, Augustus took over. He made sure that Julius was known as a god. And so that meant he could be the son of God. And Augustus's kid did that after as well. In fact, Rome itself was believed to be a godly city and worshipped. And they had all of these idols everywhere that you would worship in different places. And if you wanted to be a part of that community, that is what you did. You worshiped these idols because that's what everyone does. And Paul says to this church, you've shown great faith by turning away from your idols and worshiping the one and only true and living God. You have changed the center of your heart to be about yourselves and your culture, to be about God and loving him and sharing his gospel. We might not have politicians who claim to be the sons of God. We might not have idols hidden all over our culture that we worship and and praise and bow down to. But we have a culture that is calling us to a certain viewpoint, a certain way of living, a certain set of values. I'm in a class right now in, in my uh, master's course, and I just read a book that was all about the, the hidden worldviews. There's so many books, and, and there's a lot of work done on, on different religions out there and, and which one is, is the true religion, and a lot of work done on Christianity compared to these other religions. But this book focused on, okay, but what about all of those worldviews in this culture that aren't religions, don't prompt themselves up to be religions, but sneak in to distract you from following God? What about the, the individualism and, and the materialism? all of the self-centered ideologies that come from this culture that are so easy to fall into because they don't use the language of religion, but they pull your heart towards them. One of the challenges that we see here is if we want to be a church waiting for God that's doing his work, waiting for the return of Christ, is we need to make sure that we're turning from idols to worship the one and only true and living God. That as we seek to live our lives, we aren't focused on what is easiest for us or what we want the most. That we're not seeking to fit into the culture that we're in, but we're aiming to worship God and bring the culture to see the truth that he is and the love that is waiting for him. Waiting for God means knowing that he is the true God who saves us, the true God who sent his son for us, that in him we find life and love that we could never imagine or never get anywhere else, that every other thing that promises us value and identity and meaning are idols, dead, broken, meaningless. And only by turning to God, only by knowing the love that Christ has for us, only in focusing on his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath, can we find life, can we find salvation, can we find God, can we find who we've been created to be? And so as a people here today who are waiting for Christ to return or to be called home, 
This is not an opportunity for us to get popcorn and, and, and wait for the real show to begin. This is not a time for us to sit around waiting for what's to come. But as we wait, we need to know that we are waiting for Christ who didn't stay in heaven on his throne, but came down to work for us, to live a perfect life and give it up on the cross for us so that we could live, so that we could be brought into relationship with God who we've been created to worship for all of eternity. That we are waiting for Christ who came down for me and for you. And because of the work that he's done for us, because of the love that he's shown for us, because of the grace and forgiveness that he's given us through his work on the cross and in his resurrection and ascension to the Father, we wait and we work for him. We work so that we would be ready for when he comes, so that we'd be worshiping him now. We work so that others would, would hear the gospel and have their lives changed and join us in this work and waiting for Christ we wait and we anticipate and we work for him who saved us because he's worth it, because he loves us and because he calls us to worship him and to love others. I'm gonna invite the, the band back up and we're gonna pray. Father, we are here and we are waiting. On our hearts, we cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come. And we anticipate the perfection and the glory and the holiness that you have called us to and you are bringing us to. We are so thankful that you sent your son to bring us home. But we pray that, that you would open our eyes to see the work that you've put before us, that you would give us hearts like yours that cry out, for justice, for hope, for the lost. We pray that you would give us strength in this church to be people who wait by working for you, by participating in your kingdom come, that you would give us hearts to not wait to worship you, but to worship you now and for all of eternity. Father, we pray that you would shape this church to love you and love your people in such a way that you would look at us and say, that is a model for other churches and other Christ followers to follow as they worship me. Would we be so focused on you and your love that we can't stop but praise you and serve you all of our days and that we would anticipate with joy your perfect kingdom that you've bought us to with the blood of your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.